This week's episode is a talk from Pastor Rich Lusk entitled, Headship and Authority, How Patriarchy Serves the Good of All, from the series, Toward a Happy and Holy Home. Listen to the full series available now on Canon Plus. All right, great. It is wonderful to be with you. Had a great time with you last night and uh, glad to be with you again today. Uh, what did we see last night? I know maybe not everybody was here, so let me uh, start out with a little bit of review. Uh, what did we see last night? We saw that Adam was created as head of the human race, and he was created as head of his wife. His headship is a pre-fall reality. It's not a result of the fall. It's not part of the curse. It's there in the beginning. It is God's original design. Uh, the human race derives its name from him, which tells you he is the head of the human race, the federal head, the representative of the race. And we see he's the head of his wife because actually in those opening chapters of Genesis, he names his wife twice. And naming is an act of authority. He names her before the fall. He names her after the fall, which shows you that, again, his headship is a reality before uh, sin enters. And then we see that sin actually does not um, eradicate his headship or, or mean the end of his headship. He will continue to act as head even uh, in a fallen world. Uh, God gives him the law, the one law that they had, uh, the prohibition on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil before his wife was created, which means that she will have to learn it from him. And this is why the Apostle Paul appeals to the creation order in 1 Timothy 2 when he forbids the church from having uh, women pastors. Uh, Adam was not just her husband. He was also her pastor. She was not just a wife. She's also the first congregation. And so God set things up in such a way that Adam would have to teach her. Uh, and she was to receive the sacramental food from the tree of life from his hands. Uh, and that's why, really, we can see the fall in Genesis chapter 3 as a complete role reversal, where everything is inverted. The serpent becomes her teacher. He's a false prophet, a false teacher, rather than her husband teaching her. And she becomes the officiant over the sacramental meal, distributing the fruit from uh, the tree rather than receiving it from his hand. He receives it from hers. And so it's all backwards. She, she in a sense, becomes the first female pastor, you could say, uh, Pastor Ed. Uh, and uh, so everything is backwards there. And we've been dealing with gender confusion uh, ever since. Uh, role reversal between the sexes has become a thing uh, because of the fall, and it's something we still wrestle with today. Uh, we see, too, that Adam was given uh, a mission before the woman was created. He was given a job. He was given, uh, you could say, in, in effect, his side of the creation mandate. Uh, he was to uh, guard the garden and to work the garden. And you see him exercising dominion before the woman is created when he names the animals. But as he names the animals, he realizes that to fulfill this creation mandate, he is going to need a suitable helper. God says it is not good for the man to be alone. And so God gives him a helper in the form of a woman. Uh, and we can say, and we really see this in Genesis 1, where God uh, blesses the, the man and the woman, both made in his image, and gives them both this creation mandate to uh, subdue the earth and to rule over it and to multiply and fill the earth. The whole creation mandate belongs to the whole human race. The whole creation mandate belongs to both the man and the woman, and it can only be fulfilled uh, with both of them working together. They have to each do their part, but that's just the thing. They each have a part. 
there is a kind of division of labor between the man and the woman in the human race uh, and this division of labor within uh, the creation mandate. The dominion side of the mandate especially, not, not exclusively, but especially belongs to the man. The multiplication side of the mandate, again, not exclusively, but especially belongs to the woman. Uh, but you see in this how they need each other. Together, they're going to rule over God's creation as king and queen. And of course, within their relationship to one another, the king will rule over the queen and the queen will submit to the king. So together, they rule over all of creation, but he's going to have a special position ruling over her. She's going to be in submission to him, and that is God's order. Uh, now, how this gets worked out in our world today uh, is obviously complex. Uh, there's no doubt that it, there's, there's certain complications that we have to uh, reckon with. Uh, it's layered in how it works out. Uh, so just to give you one example of this, um, I've talked about the, you know, the woman submitting to the man there in Genesis. Well, not every woman submits to every man. Uh, in fact, uh, in light of Ephesians 5, we can say a woman submitting to her husband protects her from having to submit to any other man out there. Uh, it's actually a form of protection. We'll talk about that a bit later on. Men and women do have different roles, and this is something that our culture today finds very offensive. But the reality is it is part of God's good creation. It's part of that creation design, that uh, created order. Certainly, yes, the fall has distorted this and twisted this. The fall has messed things up, so we don't always fulfill our roles as we should. Men can twist their masculinity. Women can twist their femininity. There's more than one way to get it wrong. But the early chapters of Genesis show us the pattern, the order, the design. The early chapters of Genesis show us God's will for the human race, the trajectory that he wants us to follow. Now, in this talk, I'm going to especially focus on uh, marriage and particularly the man's role in the marriage. This is hus hus headship and husbandry is what I'm calling this, how the patriarchy serves the good of us all. Uh, headship and husbandry. So I want to focus on the man. Uh, the man is the head, but uh, all too often today, men are embarrassed or even ashamed of their position as head. And so they don't really function as head. In many cases, they're really just figureheads, not functional heads. Uh, but before getting into that, I want to talk a little bit more about what headship actually is. So understand this. Hierarchy is built into God's creation. We live in a creation that is filled with all kinds of hierarchies. This is true in nature. Uh, this is true in culture. Uh, hierarchy is ubiquitous in God's world. We see these patterns of authority uh, all over the place. Think of a ship or think of the military or think of a corporation. Uh, they all have hierarchies or think of a football team. Uh, there, there's, a, there's an elaborate system of authority on a football team. You've got a head coach. You've got an assistant coach. The assistant coach has real authority, but he also operates under the overarching authority of the head coach. Okay, he's the head. The, the head coach is the head. So the fact that we find a hierarchical model of authority in marriage and family life is really no surprise. Uh, in Ephesians 5, the man is called the head of his wife, uh, even as Christ is head of the church. Uh, headship clearly has to include rule. It has to include authority. Does anybody doubt that Christ rules over his church? Uh, does anybody doubt that Christ has authority over his church? No, certainly he does. That's, that's a big element uh, of what headship means. The church, in fact, confesses that Christ is Lord. 
in First Peter chapter 3, Peter tells us that Sarah called Abraham Lord and obeyed him. The church calls Christ Lord. Uh, Sarah called her husband Lord. Uh, you see that connection. The husband is Lord of his wife. He is Lord of his home. Now, of course, he's under authority as well uh, because Christ is the Lord of the Lord. Christ is the Lord of the husband. So he's he's accountable to Christ and he's got to be in submission to Christ. But still, you see that hierarchical uh, pattern there in uh, in the marriage and it is patterned after the Christ church relationship. Consider too the words that are used for the wife in Ephesians 5, the kinds of things she's to, supposed to do. It's words like respect and submit and obey. So again, all of those words used of the wife also indicate that the man is the ruler. Again, he is the head. And it's interesting in Ephesians 5, he's not commanded to become the head. It's simply stated as a fact. He is the head of his wife. It is an indicative statement. It is a statement of fact. Paul doesn't uh, issue this as a command. Try your best, guys, to become the head. Try your best, men, to uh, to you know, strive to become the head of your wife. No, that's not it. Headship just is. His headship just is what it is. It's just the way things are. Uh, what Paul's doing there is giving us something descriptive. Now, as we saw last night, the descriptive gives rise to all kinds of prescriptives because the man is head, because that's the fact, that, that's the, the, the factual state of affairs in the marriage. Then, yes, the husband has all kinds of, of duties. He has certain obligations that follow from that. But you have to start with the descriptive, with the fact of his headship itself. Again, the problem, though, is all too often today, men do not fulfill the responsibilities that flow from their headship. They're not comfortable being head, and so they don't act as head. Uh, some men uh, distort their headship in such a way that they become tyrants or abusers. Uh, that's one way to get it wrong. Uh, other men uh, abdicate uh, their position, and they simply don't exercise the authority they've been given. You see both of these in the early chapters of Genesis. Uh, Adam is the classic case of an abdicator. Uh, he stands by passively and watches as the serpent tempts and deceives, deceives his wife. And we talked about this last night. What should Adam have done? He should have protected her. He should have guarded her. He should have guard, guarded the garden. He should have crushed the serpent's head. Adam became effeminate. Uh, you could say this is, I like to call this toxic effeminacy. Uh, toxic effeminacy. Uh, Adam became effeminate. He should have been a warrior and instead he was a wimp. Uh, he should have stepped in and crushed the serpent's head and said he stands by and watches. He becomes passive when he should have been active. He becomes a pacifist when he should have been a fighter. Uh, you go into Genesis 4 and with Cain and then especially with Lamech, you see the opposite kind of problem with masculinity. Lamech in particular is a really good example of this because he clearly becomes a tyrant who abuses his authority. He's not satisfied just to have one wife. He takes multiple wives. Uh, he kills a man for wounding him, and he swears uh, 77-fold vengeance. Remember how Jesus said to forgive 70 times 7? Well, Jesus is telling us to not be Lamech, to reverse that kind of vengeance that, that Lamech swore that he would uh, bring on anybody else. Lamech is truly a case of toxic masculinity, masculinity gone to seed, undisciplined masculinity, unsanctified masculinity, unrestrained masculinity, fallen masculinity at its worst. So we want to avoid those those pitfalls, those ditches on either side, the way of Adam or the way of Lamech, toxic effeminacy, toxic masculinity. What does real masculinity look like? What is headship in marriage supposed to be like? 
Well, again, here I'm afraid that very often the modern church does not really help us. Because the modern church has been so feminized, so impacted by feminism, we don't really know or understand what masculinity is anymore. Uh, churches that primarily sing Jesus is my girlfriend type songs. I know that's not you, but that's a lot of the church. But churches that sing that kind of music, that's not going to foster masculinity uh, in their midst. Uh, churches where the sermon is basically like a big group therapy session. Uh, those churches are not going to foster true headship in men either. And they're not going to foster a respect for male headship in the women of the congregation. Churches that treat female piety as the norm for men, that basically judge men by women's standards or expectations are not going to foster headship either. If men are only considered good uh, to the extent that they act like women, the men are going to be feminized. And you see this especially happening with boys. It happens in the culture at large, but it happens in the church too, where uh, the, 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 what we expect of girls becomes the norm for boys. And if they don't act like good little girls, then we consider them bad boys and uh, we penalize them for that. And it's not helpful. Every male-female relationship has a dominant and submissive partner. Every male-female relationship has one who leads and one who follows. Uh, in every relationship, there is someone who controls the decision-making, someone who has the final say, someone who has to give permission to the other. Now, what have we seen? The dominant partner is supposed to be the husband. But in practice, because of the fall, sometimes husband and wife swap roles. There is this role reversal, just like what you see in Genesis chapter three. You know, sometimes we joke about this kind of thing, you know, a bunch of guys get together and they talk about going on a fishing trip. And one of the guys says, well, I got to ask the boss. Okay. And we know he's joking about that, but um, I don't know if it's a great joke because in all too often uh, it's the case that the woman really is the boss. You know, somebody's going to wear the pants in the marriage. Uh, you know, it's how we sometimes put it. Who is it? Um, I've been in marriage counseling situations where I've seen this play out. You know, let's say that I'm I'm talking with a married couple about things in their marriage and one of them, and it's almost always the wife who speaks up and says these kind of things, but one of them will say, oh, neither one of us is really in charge. We negotiate and compromise on everything. Okay, if a couple says that, I know the woman is really in charge. That's just how it is. Let's say a married couple tells me, well, we have an equal marriage, an egalitarian marriage. Uh, we're equals, and that's how we do things. Again, I know that she is really in charge. And I know this because no marriage is actually an equal partnership. Uh, it, it can't be an equal partnership in that kind of way. Uh, anything with two heads is a monster. There can only be one head. Uh, practically speaking, one of them will rule the other. Let's say a, a couple says something like this. Uh, well, so in our marriage, the husband has tie-breaking authority. So if we get in a situation where we can't agree, then he decides. Okay, if a couple says that, then I know she's really in charge. In fact, it kind of reminds me of a couple that uh, they said when they got married that uh, he would make all the big decisions and she would make all the small decisions. And after 25 years of marriage, he realized there had never been a big decision. Uh, <clears throat> Many men are actually scared of their wives, uh, scared to not give their wives their way. Uh, they have very little confidence in their ability to rule or command their wives. And again, they don't function as heads of their homes. Uh, sometimes men disguise their abdication under the rubric of servant leadership. 
Servant leadership has been uh, criticized a lot in recent years, and I, I think it probably deserves some criticism the way that it's played out. Servant leadership, of course, in itself is a biblical concept. Uh, Jesus says true greatness is found in humble service, and he set uh, an example of this kind of thing. For example, in the upper room, when he washed the disciples' feet, we see Jesus acting as a servant leader. He's the one who's in charge. He's got all the authority, but he stoops to serve, and that's a beautiful picture of what servant leadership ought to be. But think about this as well. Jesus served his disciples, but his service did not always take uh, the form or the shape that they expected or that they wanted. Uh, We do not find Jesus going to the 12 and asking their permission uh, to do things. He never follows their orders. Uh, He does for them what, in fact, they cannot do for themselves. He serves them precisely by leading them and by using his power and wisdom for their good. But he doesn't ask their permission to do things, and he doesn't calibrate, he doesn't recalibrate his mission uh, to their felt needs. If he had, his mission would have looked very, very different. Uh, he did what they need, what he knew they needed to have done, even though it wasn't what they thought they needed. Uh, the problem is with how we often do servant leadership or what we mean by it, uh, and a lot of times how it ends up working out, servant leadership is not really leadership at all, uh, or it's what we might call leadership from behind, um, where basically the leader kind of figures out what you know others want to do, and then he says, oh, yeah, that's what we'll do. Um, but it's not really his decision. He's deferred. He just makes it look like his decision after the fact. He's leading from behind. Uh, this turns leadership into subservience. Uh, it turns the head into the helpmeet. Um, I've put it this way, the the servant leadership all too often is all servant, no leader. The servant part swallows up the the leader part. And when this happens, the whole relationship suffers. Biblical servant leadership views the act of leadership itself as a form of service. The leader serves by actually leading, which means he's out in front taking charge and taking responsibility. He's the one who takes risks and who bears the brunt of those risks. He's the one who makes decisions and therefore will draw all the criticism if things don't go well. Jesus was a servant leader in this kind of sense. Again, he never went around asking his disciples permission to go do something. Uh, And and, um, you see him taking charge again and again and again. He's on the way, and Mark's gospel, Mark especially emphasizes this. Jesus is on the way, and he knows where he's going. The disciples are following along, and they don't always know where he's going to take them. Um, this is why, rather, in some ways, instead of calling Jesus a servant leader, what if we call him a servant ruler, or a servant lord, or a servant king? Th- those terms may be a better way of capturing what's actually going on. And I have used the word ruler and leader largely interchangeably. But even there, there's actually a distinction. And C.S. Lewis uh, draws this distinction. I'll, I'll read you this quote just to give you an idea, and then I'll explain it a little bit. Lewis says, our rulers have become like schoolmasters and are always demanding keenness. And you notice that I'm guilty of a slight archaism in calling them rulers. Leaders is the modern word. I have suggested elsewhere that this is a deeply significant change of vocabulary. Our demand upon them has changed no less than theirs on us. For of a ruler, one asks justice, incorruption, diligence, and perhaps clemency. Of a leader, dash, initiative, and I suppose what people call magnetism or personality. Okay, so think about the distinction between a ruler and a leader. Okay, a ruler 
His position is based largely on character. A leader, his position is based largely on charisma. The ruler occupies an office. The leader occupies a role. The leader has, the, the ruler has authority based on his position. The leader has authority based on his personality. You obey a ruler. You follow a leader. Rulers command. Leaders persuade. Now, here's the thing. Heads should be both. But there is a difference, and we need to acknowledge that difference, and we need to take it into account. Good heads are both. A, 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 a man who is, who is a faithful head over his wife is going to rule her and lead her. He's going to rule and lead his family. Now, in saying all this, I'm not saying that husbands uh, you know, simply boss everybody around in the household. Again, that, that would be a, a twisting of this. Um, I'm not ruling out a man seeking to persuade his wife with arguments and reasons, uh, carefully constructed and, and gently and humbly presented. He ought to do that. Uh, Jesus does not just give his bride commands. All throughout his word, he also gives reasons for those commands, as if he's seeking to persuade her to obey him. And Jesus is never heavy-handed. Uh, his burden is easy. His yoke is light. And husbands should patter themselves after Jesus in that way as well. Jesus doesn't just burden down his church with more than she can bear. Uh, and husbands should not do that with their wives either. In fact, I'll go one step further with this because this is there's obviously a place where the analogy between Christ uh, and the church versus a husband and his wife where that analogy runs out. Jesus is God. And so the church has to always do whatever he says. There are limits on the obedience that a wife should render to her husband. She should never follow her husband uh, into sin. That's obvious. But but we can take that a little bit further. Husbands are fallible. Jesus is infallible, but husbands are fallible. And so, yes, a husband, when he wants to take his family in a certain direction, he should use all the tools of persuasion that are available to him. But he should also be open to being persuaded. Because husbands, you know what? We can be wrong. We can be wrong. And sometimes we husbands in humility need to back up and go a different direction. Uh, we've got a word, a very special biblical word for the husband who will not listen to his wife. Uh, it's the word fool. A husband who does not listen to his wife, who will not hear what she has to say, is a fool. And I mean that quite literally. Uh, in Proverbs, the man's wife is his lady wisdom. And so he is supposed to take counsel with her. She is his wisdom. That's part of why God has given her to you. You need help. She provides it. That's what we see in Genesis. The man needs help. She's created to provide that help. And a man who will not receive that help, a man in humility, who will not in humility receive that help, a man who's too arrogant to think he needs that help, really is a fool. A husband who acts self-sufficient, like he already knows it all, like he doesn't need help. He's overplayed his hand, and he's going to lose. Now, let's clear up something else about a man's headship. The key to headship is holding together authority and responsibility. This is really the key to the patriarchy, historically speaking, holding together authority and responsibility. The head has authority. He rules. But he also has responsibility. So his privileges and his obligations always go together. There are certain privileges that come with being head. But for every privilege, there's a corresponding obligation. Do not separate privilege and obligation. Do not separate authority and responsibility. Men who are tyrants, who become lamecs, exercise authority, but they do not take responsibility. They have no accountability. 
that kind of hyper-masculinity, uh, I, I'd say is actually another form of effeminacy just in disguise. It's just heavily disguised. But today we tend to have the other problem, and that is men who have no authority, but who are still held responsible. In fact, I would say this is what's happened. You know, when we talk about the patriarchy, we can mean two different things. We can mean this built-in order to the creation where men are built for rule. And of course, that can't be eradicated as part of God's creation design. But then sometimes by patriarchy, we mean the whole set of um laws and and customs and practices that arise from God's creation design, though now living in a fallen world. Okay, so we we might mean a a kind of legal and social order by the patriarchy, uh, where where men have authority and responsibility. Well, uh, you know, feminists have been trying to smash the patriarchy, and they can't smash the patriarchy in the first sense. The creation design will persist. Nature's too stubborn. It can't be smashed in that sense. Uh, But the legal side of it, the social side of it, can be smashed and largely has been. And it is especially the authority side of the patriarchy that has collapsed, that's been smashed in all of this. So men are often still held responsible, even when they have no authority. So think about how family law works in our country. Uh, divorce laws, for example. We have no-fault divorce laws. So um, what's interesting, you know, either spouse can terminate a marriage at will at pretty much any time. Uh, but what's interesting is 80% of divorces in America are initiated by women. That's really interesting. 80%. A lot of times, of course, that, you know, there, there may be justified reasons for that. We know that there are, there are biblical grounds for divorce. But why would it be 80% uh, of the time the woman initiating divorce? Well, one reason is because we have a family law system that financially incentivizes women to pursue divorce. So think about this. You might have a man who hasn't really done anything wrong. He hasn't done anything worthy of divorce, and he wants to stay married to his wife. But she, for whatever reason, decides she wants to move on. She can divorce him against his will, and he will be on the hook, perhaps for thousands of dollars per month in alimony and child support. And she'll get custody of the children, and she'll get cash prizes out of it, uh, essentially, uh, for terminating her marriage. We have a system that holds the man responsible as provider, but does not give him authority in that particular case, to preserve his marriage. Uh, Biblical headship holds authority and responsibility together. And this is because a husband's headship is really symbolic. And again, that's what Ephesians 5 shows us. A man's headship is rooted in Christ. It's patterned after Christ. It symbolizes Christ. So think about how this works in the gospel, because this is really what Paul uh, is getting at in Ephesians 5. Um, Christ's headship over the church. Christ rules over his church. He has authority over his church, his bride, but he also takes responsibility for the church's sin. He takes responsibility for his bride's debts, and he pays his bride's debts. Christ always, you could say, maintains frame with his bride. Uh, his bride enters into his story and comes under his mission. She finds her identity in his calling. Uh, she becomes truly herself in obeying his will. The church is Mrs. Jesus Christ. And he takes authority over her and he takes responsibility for her. And one of the chief ways we see this in terms of how this works out, she has debts. He pays them. He makes her debts his responsibility. He takes all of her debt on himself and fulfills it 
and pays it on her behalf. That's what he's doing at the cross. He's not guilty of what she's done. He didn't accumulate those debts, but he still takes responsibility for those debts and he pays them in full. Now, when I say the gospel has a patriarchal structure, that the gospel is a patriarchal story, it's a patriarchal narrative, this is what I mean. The son is sent by the father and submits to the father, and the son comes to rescue his bride and to reestablish his rule over her. He protects her, he provides for her, he takes responsibility for her, and he pays her debts. And again, as I said last night, this is why feminism and egalitarianism are heresies. You cannot tell the gospel story in feminist categories. You cannot uh, put the gospel in egalitarian terms. It simply doesn't work. The gospel is patriarchal. It's all about a husband ruling his bride and taking responsibility for her. We can even add to that. It's about all of us becoming children of the heavenly father who promised to us an inheritance. Now, I said the patriarchy, at least the the legal social side of it, has largely collapsed. I do think that 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 is uh, seen in our culture, and and many people celebrate that as a good thing. Um, It is interesting, if you go back and you really dig into the social and legal aspect of the patriarchy as it existed, uh, I think you can make a – I think a lot of times archaic laws – um, older laws or, or customs or practices that we might think of as somehow oppressive towards women, actually, if you really understand them, did serve the good of women. So we, you know, we might think, oh, well, husbands back then, you know, they had such complete authority, uh, over their homes and they were the only ones who could own property. Okay. But they were the only ones who paid taxes. Um, only men could vote. Well, sure, but it was tried in, in, uh, before the 19th Amendment was ratified, it was tried in court, and courts decided that because only men uh, fought in the military and only men mm. were drafted into the military because they were the ones who fought the wars and defended the nation, therefore they should have the right to vote. They could go fight in the wars at age 18 so that perhaps at age 21, if they lived through the war, uh, they could they could vote. Uh, that kind of thing, um, you know, it was part of the patriarchal order. Um there are other examples of this. Um, if a woman got into debt, if a wife got into debt, uh, if she ran up a big debt, it was his responsibility. I mean, this is this is the gospel being played out. This is how far they took it in the patriarchal social order. If she got into debt, her debt was his responsibility. And there are even stories of women who didn't like the husband they were married to, and so they ran up huge debts, you know, in their own name, knowing he'd be responsible for it. He ends up getting thrown into debtor's prison, and hey, she's free. That that kind of thing. Uh, so, you know, we might think, oh, well, this was just a system that privileged men in all kinds of ways. Not exactly. It's a little more complicated than that. There were certain privileges men had. Uh, but with every one of those privileges, there was a responsibility. There was an obligation. Uh, and, and you have to see a lot of this. And we can criticize certain aspects of it. We could discuss whether these things were all for the best. But a lot of it is because they wanted a social order that was truly reflective of the gospel and truly reflective of what they saw as the man's headship role. Uh, yes, men had authority. Men had authority, but they also had responsibility. Yes, men had authority over their wives, but they also had responsibility for their wives. In that traditional patriarchal order, it was understood that men are protectors and providers. And again, this goes back to what I said last night. The biggest lie feminism ever told is that the patriarchy was oppressive. If anything, it oppressed men by assigning men heavy burdens to bear and building a civilization really on the backs of men. 
The older order taught men to think of the lives of women and children before their own, to put the lives of women and children before their own. Okay, when the under the patriarchy, like when the Titanic uh, hit the iceberg, it was women and children first. And if you were a woman or a child, your success, your chances of survival on the Titanic were many times greater than if you were a man. One hundred years later, in 2012, I'm drawing a blank on the ship's name, but uh, you know it runs aground in the Mediterranean, and it's a free for all. It's chaos because the men are not deferring to the women anymore, uh, and it's it's uh, you know it's crazy. Uh, but that's what the loss of patriarchy means. It, it, uh, it, it puts women actually at greater risk and greater uh, jeopardy. It leaves them more vulnerable than they were under a patriarchal order. Historically, men sacrificed in order to protect and provide for women. In fact, this is how you proved your manhood under the older patriarchal order. Men acted as providers to free women up to do the really important work of caring for children. What I find interesting is that when that, you know when they do these studies, these surveys, what they find is uh, most women today, even after uh, a couple generations of, of I would call feminist brainwashing, even now, still most women with children would prefer to be with them, would love to devote themselves more fully to their children, devote themselves more fully to home and family life if they could, if they felt the freedom to do so. Now, feminists will often complain that it's not fair for women to be stuck at home when men get to do all the exciting jobs out there in the world. But it's not really that way. Uh, Working in an office is not intrinsically more fulfilling or rewarding than keeping house or raising children. Again, you can make a case for the opposite. Uh, Feminists would try to make it look that way. Uh, I think many times they do this by comparing the best of office life to the worst of home life. But that's just not reality. Feminists have managed to ridicule and disparage homemakers, which has led many women to think that work outside of the home is more valuable than work inside the home, that work really only counts if it brings in a paycheck. But again, that's really not true. And again, if anything, you can make a case for the opposite, that the work done in the home is of greater value, of more uh, enduring and lasting significance. But feminists really only see value in what men have traditionally done and in what draws a paycheck. Uh, I find that to be a mistake. Um, think about the callings God assigns us in terms of his design. Okay, I just want you to just, you know, just kind of run a thought experiment here and just kind of work this out. So let's just take a husband and a wife and their baby. So you got a man and a woman and their baby. Well, what does that baby need? Baby humans require constant care and nurture. They need lots of attention. For several years, they need lots of attention. Of course, they also need protection and provision. They need resources and money that can buy those resources. So the child needs nurture and the child needs provision. Well, who should do what for the child? It's obvious, isn't it, that the woman will be better equipped to care for the child, to nurture the child? And it's obvious, isn't it, that the man will be better equipped to provide for the child? Now, what we've seen is feminists want a society based on the interchangeability of the sexes, but that's unnatural and therefore impossible. Uh, women have wounds. Women are obviously the, the child bearers. Uh, women are the child nurturers. It's, it's obvious it's got to be that way. So long as women have the wombs, there's, you simply can't have interchangeability. 
Uh, and it's obvious, too, that the man is better equipped for provision. Okay, That's the patriarchal order. It's really what we call the creation order. Now, that system, which is clearly a design feature of the human race, to call that oppressive, as people started to do about 50, perhaps 60 or 70 years ago, is, is really hard to fathom. The reality is that until very recently in human history, the vast majority of the kind of work that needed to be done to provide for a family, what, you know, the kind of work that needed to be done to bring home the bacon, as it were, to be the breadwinner, was dirty, difficult, and dangerous. I mean, it's the same, you know, with war. We think about the, the, the protecting, that's the provision side. We think about the protecting side. Same with war. War has always been a man's game. It's a man's enterprise. Uh, women in combat is a travesty and it's one of the worst possible forms of social engineering that we've engaged in. Uh, in recent decades, what have we seen? We've seen women with children, women who still have very young children, flocking back into the workforce. And again, in some cases, this may be unavoidable. In some cases, it may be impossible to avoid this. I'm not going to say that it's always wrong. But as a society-wide pattern, it is a problem. It's interesting that women wanting to drop kids off at daycare and go into the workforce really only started after there were cushy office jobs in air-conditioned buildings to go to. Once most of the dirty, difficult, and dangerous work in setting up our civilization had been done. I mean, you rewind uh, back before the Industrial Revolution. Women were never clamoring to go into the mines. Women were never clamoring to go out to sea when that's what provision required. It was only after you had much more comfortable and cushy type jobs uh, that you started to have this demand uh, for women to enter into the workforce. So the feminist view that women should live a man's life really only arose after men had created a safe and comfortable civilization. But now feminists will say the traditional patriarchal order was oppressive of women. So, yes, it's true. Women did not get to go die in the mines uh, or ruin their lungs in the mines. They didn't get to go die on the battlefield or at sea. But to say that they were oppressed because they didn't they couldn't do these things doesn't make a lot of sense. I've said that the, the lie of feminism was uh, turning uh, the patriarchy, which was to protect women, and, and calling that oppression. Another way of thinking about this is feminists have basically turned male obligations, what were traditionally male obligations, the male obligation to protect and provide. Women have started to, to turn those obligations. Feminists have started to call those obligations privileges. Oh, men were privileged because they were the ones who could do this. But to, to call these things privileges is really very bizarre when you think about the kind of work that actually had to be done. It wasn't privilege at all. Like we saw last night, traditionally there was a division of labor within the creation mandate with men focused on dominion and rule in the world so they could protect and provide and women helping by focusing on uh, being fruitful and multiplying at home, homemaking and nurture. So you could put it this way, the woman's primary work is in her body bearing a child. The man's primary work is through his body taking dominion over the world. And the fact is, any successful society is going to have to work this way. Again, kind of run this thought experiment with me. What do you need in order to have a successful society? A successful society is going to have to respect a man's headship and his role as protector and provider precisely because that is what is best for women and children. If men's roles are not respected, then boys are not going to want to mature into men. They're not going to want to take on those manly responsibilities because they're not going to see it as worthwhile. 
Why take on all those responsibilities to protect and provide for my family when I could sit around and play video games in all my free time? Uh, why, you know, why take on all those responsibilities? If you say masculinity is toxic, you're going to get less and less masculinity until finally it's too late. And then you're going to realize how badly civilization actually needed that masculinity. Think about how men are presented in our culture at large, especially in pop culture. They're presented as oafs and idiots. Now, pop culture could never get away with presenting women that way because women would complain about it. Um, men don't do that. Uh, but, but, uh, there, there is this, and in fact, if you compare how women and men are presented in pop culture, there's a very sharp contrast with men as completely, you know, these incompetent idiots and women presented as intelligent and, and smart and often, uh, even stronger than men, able to beat up men now with the female superheroes, uh, and all of that. We got a really big problem on our hands, uh, because of this. See, the reality is patriarchy, father rule, again, literally, is not oppressive, it's liberating. And patriarchy must be respected if we're going to have a healthy civilization. Patriarchs always pride themselves in their commitment to protecting women. Uh, they pride themselves in their ability to protect and provide for children. The entire patriarchy, in fact, you could say, is designed around the good of women and children. Again, feminists talk about smashing the patriarchy, but since they've succeeded in smashing the patriarchy, what can we, what, what do we see? Uh, we have women who are more vulnerable. We have more fatherlessness, leaving children more vulnerable. We have more abuse, more rape, more divorce, more pornography. The reality is in smashing the patriarchy, women actually traded protection for exploitation. So again, th let's continue our thought experiment here. Successful societies. What do successful societies really need? Successful societies always, and I mean always, are patriarchal. Because successful societies have to do two things. They have to channel the male sex drive, and they have to protect vulnerable women and children. The biggest threat to women is bad men. The best help to women is good men. Again, it's patriarchs versus predators. So how does a society get more patriarchs and fewer predators? How can you get men to embrace their headship role as leaders and rulers, as protectors and providers? Well, what is it that most men want? What is the strongest drive in a man's life? For the vast, vast, vast majority of men, the strongest drive in his life is sex. So what is the best way to harness a man's sex drive and his, his sexual energy for good? It is to restrict it to marriage. It's to restrict it to marriage. Nothing motivates men to become marriage material faster than this. Confine sex to marriage and he'll become marriage worthy. Tell a man he can only have sex if he's willing to commit to one woman for life to protect her and provide her. And if that's what it takes in order for him to, to, to fulfill his sex drive, then he'll do it. He always has throughout the whole of human history. He will take on the responsibilities of a household, of providing for that little society we call the family. He'll become a beast of burden to protect and provide if that's what it takes. When sex is only available in marriage, it's really only available to men who are mature and productive. So what do you get? You get a whole lot more men who are mature and productive. And so uh, 
the sexual ethics, uh, a biblical sex ethic, keeping sex tied to marriage is actually the key to a prosperous and stable society. The Bible's sex ethic and the Bible's view of marriage is the engine that powers civilization. Maybe you've heard of J.D. Unwin, uh, J.D. Unwin's thesis. He was a historian who started to study uh, the correlation between a culture's sex ethic and that culture's vitality. And what he found is sexually disciplined cultures always flourish and sexually promiscuous cultures always falter. Usually it takes about three or four generations, but eventually sexually promiscuous civilizations fall. The biblical view, which restricts sex to marriage, this is the patriarchal view, uh, it's good for the family. But more than that, it's necessary to the survival of civilization. Think how many societal problems we could solve by minimizing premarital sex. Limiting sex to marriage uh, incentivizes men to become marriage worthy. Limiting and shaming and guarding against promiscuity incentivizes marriage. It prevents fatherlessness and abortion. It lowers the divorce rate. It helps build a stable society. It lowers poverty, which is connected with things like fatherlessness. Hugely beneficial. Um, what has been called slut shaming, which is usually done actually by women to other women, uh, actually in a way is good for society because it keeps the price of sex high. The modern approach to sex does not build a culture. In fact, it destroys culture. Casual sex murder civilization. Again, if you wanted to design a stable society, what would you do? This is what you would do. You've got to have a way of channeling the male sex drive, male sexual energy. And this is what the patriarchy did. It was not oppressive to women. If anything, it was oppressive to men telling men the only way to satisfy your sexual drive, your sexual uh, energy uh, is in marriage. And so you have to become marriage worthy. Uh, and so that's something we've, we've really got to keep in mind. Um, so let me close with this. Let me close with this. Um, the family is at the heart of any healthy society. And patriarchy is at the heart of the family. What does the patriarchy demand of men? The patriarchy demands of men maturity. And the patriarchy demands of men that they protect and provide for women and children. The patriarchy demands uh, that a man be self-disciplined, that he channel his sexual drive towards the covenant of marriage. And in all of these ways, we can see patriarchy serves the good of men because it requires maturity out of men. It's good for women and children because they get the protector and provider they need. And it's good for civilization as a whole because it creates stability. It brings order. Okay, let me close there. Um, do we want to go straight to Q&A? Yes. Okay. Okay. Great. Divorce. Okay. Okay. Well, you know, one thing to keep in mind, and, and you can tell me if this kind of gets at what you're, you're, you're asking about, um, up until um, actually 1969, uh, it was actually very difficult for a married couple to get divorced. You actually had to uh, produce proof of grounds for divorce, which basically our divorce laws, our family laws matched up with the Bible fairly well, uh, where you could only divorce, uh, say, in cases of adultery or some kind of abandonment, desertion. It had, it had to be some kind of very serious violation of the marriage covenant in order to divorce. And actually, in 1969, Ronald Reagan, governor of California at the time, 
uh, signed the first no-fault divorce bill in the U.S. And uh, that allowed uh, people to divorce basically for any reason at all. And so we went from a divorce rate of something like, I mean, it was less than 5% um, within 15 years of, because of, once you had the California law, the rest of the country adopted similar laws, basically making it much easier to divorce. Within 15 to 20 years of that, close to 50% of marriages were entering in divorce. So it was, it was, it was catastrophic and, and it, it was extremely fast how quickly all of that changed. So the divorce rate was extremely low. Uh, up until then, um, I don't I don't remember the exact percentage, but it but it was very very low, and then it just exploded after the laws changed. And uh, as part of that that change in divorce law, you had you had changing um, changes in family law that 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 you know in a sense you could say were designed to uh, help women. I mean that that was that was the goal. I mean it was part of the feminist agenda, um, but. Uh, but I think really actually have been really bad for the American family. Um, so um, the fact that, that you do have women today who, who see a financial incentive in divorcing uh, is, is a huge, huge issue. Um, there are a lot of women who, don't, who will just will not see any downside if they're unhappy with their marriage for any reason whatsoever. Uh, and so it's very easy for them to opt out and then they get a big chunk of money from their husband and uh, they almost always get control of the children. And so they do have an incentive uh, that, that men don't. And that's why far more women than men uh, initiate divorce. Um, the Genesis account, um, when you look at the modern church, um, there's, there's, they're primarily teaching out of the Old Testament. They don't really cover our New Testament. They're not really covering the Old Testament. Ken Ham has been blaming the church for throwing out Genesis 1 through 11, uh, creation account. And listening to you teach through 1 through 3, modern churches also try to teach this concept of wives committing husbands and false but not necessarily maybe how, you know, with the teaching of one three. When people get into arguments, disagreements, they're always fighting about the husband and wife. They're fighting about the current situation. Yeah, so so this this is something that's really interesting to think about. If the uh, if the opening chapters of Genesis are myth, uh, then then a lot of things you know, as opposed to history, then a lot of things uh, are up in the air. If you go read First Timothy two, where Paul talks about why we can't have women pastors, if you read First Corinthians eleven, which is about uh, the role relationship between men and women, if you read Ephesians five, what you if you look at Jesus teaching on divorce in Mark chapter ten, okay, in every single one of these cases, when the New Testament is dealing with something that has to do with men and women or with marriage, it goes back to Genesis one through three, and it actually goes back to the details the specific historical details of how the man was made before the woman or how the woman was deceived in the fall, uh, the different details there in the account. 
how the man, how the woman was made from the man. Okay. All these details, these, what are presented, I think, as historical details in the opening chapter of Genesis. If those things didn't really happen, then all of the rules based upon those historical events in the New Testament, it all collapses. If, you know, if you're trying to make an argument out of 1 Timothy 2, why we shouldn't have women pastors, and the argument is based on the details of the Genesis creation account, and somebody doesn't believe that that Genesis creation account really happened, that they put it in the category of myth rather than history, then your argument is not going to be persuasive to them. And that's why one thing you see in one denomination after another is when they compromised with evolution and they did away with, with the early chapters of Genesis as history, whether you say Genesis 1 to 3 or 1 to 11, I mean, however many chapters they put in the category of myth rather than history. Uh, and, and you're right. I mean, a lot of it has to do with the, you know, the, the, the sort of the evolutionary Big Bang timeline with millions of years and and the dark you know the neo Darwinian narrative of evolution you know put in place of the creation account if you adopt that uh, then none of those New Testament rules or commands that are based on the details of of the of the of the account in Genesis are going to hold up for you they're just not and so uh, what's going to happen they're all going to be lost. Um, those 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 rules are not going to make any sense because the reasons given for them uh, are no longer valid. So what I say, you know, we, we've got what we talk about as the culture wars and you know, we call the culture wars that the culture wars, you know, have to do with things like what's the definition of marriage or, you know, what about divorce or, you know, it includes things like uh, environmental stewardship. You know, the environmental movement is is part of the. Uh, part of the culture war questions about um, economics and work uh, enter into, you know, the culture wars. Okay. What I say is the culture wars are really the Genesis wars. They're really that really the battle is over those first few chapters of Genesis, because every single one of those issues is dealt with in the opening chapters of Genesis. And if you believe Genesis is history, you're going to go one way in answering those questions. If you think it's myth, you're going to go a, a different direction. Uh, all of our culture war issues are really over Genesis. So I call them the Genesis Wars. Um, that's really what it's about. All the culture wars are actually about Genesis 1 to 3. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out the full series Toward a Happy and Holy Home, now available on Canon Plus. Mm-hmm.